Hello and welcome behind the bar of A Pint of Cthulhu. Today we have the third and final member, Chris, from the Caesars Inc. Creators of Doom Song, Lord Have Mercy. Would you like to say hello? Hello. I like how I was described as the final member of Caesar Inc. There's something really um, ominous about that. Like, we'll never have another employee beyond the three of us. Okay. <laughs> Ad ad adaption to that. The final at current. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it sounded like we defeated all the others like a boss in a video game. Yeah, I'm the final form. Last one standing. <laughs> and as you just heard there, I also have my co-host Jay. So, without further ado, shall we get started with the opening question that we ask absolutely everyone. If you could say a pint of Cthulhu was any drink, what drink would it be? Uh, I've fallen for this before. If I even tried to consider the answer for a moment, I would be sucked into the vortex of madness that is Cthulhu. So instead of answering your question, I'm going to think as hard as I can about everything else simultaneously. I think it's a very similar answer to Jack's answer. <laughs> Yeah, you can definitely tell they're brothers with that answer. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> Still good, though. Or just both very suspicious people. Yes, you both accept the madness of Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, would you like to take the first question off? Sure. So, how did you get started in the world of TTRPG design and artwork? Well, um, many, 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 many years ago, um, when I left university, I think, I started... Um, Sort of freelancing um, under the name of Caesar Inc. Um, something that wasn't an official company until about six months ago, but has been sort of the um, the, the web address of my portfolio and um, what I invoiced people as for um, for years and years and years and years. Um, and whilst I was living in Norwich um, with Morgan while they were doing their PhD, one of them I don't. I think they have an infinite number of uh, PhDs by now. But, um, yeah, I uh, started working for uh, Jack at Riverhorse because um, they needed a graphic designer. And he was like, oh, I, I know a graphic designer. Um, and then sort of after about, I think, a year of doing um, sort of on-off again freelance tasks for Riverhorse, they worked out that it would be cheaper to hire me full-time than... Uh, it would be to keep paying me as a freelancer. Um, so I started working at Riverhorse um, with uh, with Jack. Oh. That, funny enough, leads on to question two, which... What uh, what other projects have you worked on besides Doomsong then previously, especially with uh, what you were just saying there? So, basically, I think... Don't think it would be inaccurate to say everything Riverhorse has made in the past six years. Um, I think there might be. I think the Terminator Dark Fate card game is the only thing Riverhorse made in the last ten years that I didn't lay out. Ten years? Sorry, yeah, six years. Um, so yeah, we did lots of IP-based board games, um, which was a great way to sort of learn about how to do graphic design because you've got a lot of. Um, a lot of the design assumptions are done for you when you're working with an IP and you're working to fit a style guide that already exists which means it's a great way to learn sort of what's important in a style guide um, so then whilst doing that what really interested me was um, the product design aspect rather than solely the graphic design and art end of things sort of working out what people want to own and then making this thing that fits their a desire they didn't even know they had so that when they see it they're like oh yeah that's what I want <laughs> and it's this really satisfying like Santa experience you know of like <laughs> working out like okay so someone's a, um, a labyrinth the Jim Henson movie fan and I need to work out what someone who's the labyrinth the Jim Henson movie fan wants what experience they want to have at a tabletop with their friends and then I need to reverse engineer from that experience 
a product that satisfies all of those needs and then you release it and you get this really sort of really like satisfying reaction from people kind of that you've predicted this desire and then presented them with a thing and it's a really interesting way of kind of thinking about making a thing um sort of learning to make things not for yourself but for other people um and now with uh Caesaring, sort of doing this doing the same thing but satisfying both um trying to imagine how many me's there are in the world and what they desire um and trying to kind of yeah make something that will bring the joy of what i the games i want to play to other people um, and kind of hold their hand on this journey that will take them to a place that's taken me a lifetime of playing rpgs to get to um, it's a really good answer and a pretty unique yeah. one too a lot of the times you'll see people start from an idea of what they want to create and then try to turn it into something people want to play. Doing it the other way around seems like a novel way to go at it. Yeah, and it, it's something I didn't really realise that... It, it's a journey I didn't realise I'd been on until I looked back and kind of... Before I worked at River Horse, I did a lot of um, exactly that, making something for me. Um, and I would make board games that... Because you know, having been a student and then having been unemployed after being an art student, um, I would make my own board games because I was broke. <laughs> um, and we'd make these board games and often they would have rules that involve drinking or... Um, yeah. And then you sort of... Yeah, at the end of this journey where you sort of... You get a job and you're like, oh my god, I have a job. I make board games now. And then looking back and being like, oh yeah, that's... Yeah, it was a journey of learning not to make them myself and making them to satisfy a licensor or to satisfy an audience or to satisfy all of these different desires and you end up having to let go of a lot of like your own um sort of, yeah i guess goals um <laughs> fair enough so what tools or software do you use for your design artwork are you more digital more traditional um definitely more digital um, I used to be sort of post-university. I was very not digital, analog, I guess. Um, when I was sort of doing... So at university, I did um, animation, and it was a combination of traditional animation but then run through After Effects to kind of bring it to life a bit. Um, cut some corners there. And then after that, I sort of went to being more traditional and doing more sort of punky, comic booky, um, Jamie Hewlett-like style tank girly stuff um but then you sort of quickly find out that there isn't much money in <laughs> in yeah drawing again stuff for yourself um so i ended up sort of falling into graphic design which is something that i've always done on the side for sort of mates bands and um yeah people around pub posters for gigs and stuff like that um so you end up falling back more and more on the stuff that pays. Um, and obviously that's uh, much more of a digital thing. I think you'd be mad to try and lay out a book in an analogue way these days. Um, although that'd be pretty cool. We should maybe maybe if the Kickstarter makes like 8 million, we can buy a printing press and <laughs> I can print all the books old school. That would be that would be an absolutely tragic waste of money, actually, now that I've thought about it for more than a few seconds. Um, yeah, that'd so... That'd be pretty awesome, though. <laughs> <laughs> it would stand out um, so yeah we uh, I um, now work very digitally um, and I've moved back I've moved to using a tablet and Photoshop for illustration and um, InDesign for, for layout stuff um, and I realised the other week I sort of um, I was uh, drawing something with a pencil and a um, piece of paper and I, I was drawing with a pencil and a piece of paper just to sort of you know playing an RPG and I was just like quickly sketching out what the shape of the room was or something and I drew something that I a line that I was unsatisfied with and then automatically without thinking about it my left hand was just like tapped the table exactly where the undo button would be <laughs> <laughs> I just programmed I've been doing it so long that I've just programmed this undo reflex into my 
to my left hand, which I thought was pretty bizarre. Oh no. I've done, so I've used a digital pen and tablet for almost longer than I've ever done traditional art. Yeah. So I have, like, in the air above a line that's in the wrong place, lassoed around it and then tried to drag it. <laughs> Multiple oh. times. It, n it never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, all these muscle memories that you don't realise you have. <laughs> so, heading into the Doom Song side of things, how is it you've gone about the approach of creating the like character illustrations, or should I say the horrifying monstrosity uh, creations for Doom Song? Yeah, so um, the artist that illustrated Doom Song is called Maritz Krebs. Um, and he's done probably a, a solid 90% of the illustration in the book. Um, he And his illustrations have really uh, dictated the style of the illustration in the book. So stuff that is more graphical and less um, the straight illustration. And the ways in which his artwork has kind of been um, repeated and reused and um, collaged into um, different things. Um, has all been inspired by the sort of the parameters set by his style, um, which is definitely something that we've, we've sort of run with. Um, and they are done by essentially, well, it, it's fairly random. It depends, I guess, how clear an idea the the um, I was going to say the party because I'm just in RPG mode. How clear an idea the team has of a of a creature. Um, and how confident we feel that a task we're giving him just falls into his crooked Dark Age wheelhouse. So for example, um, with the character illustrations, we had a um, Jack put together this enormous sort of um, a beautiful mind style mind map board of possibilities that the uh, character creator could take. And then we put all of those occupations on a list and made sure that the list was fully populated with everything that we all wanted to see in there. Um, and then we went through and kind of worked out which ones we had a clear idea for and what would be cool. And which ones we thought uh, uh, Maritz would just absolutely run with. Um, and then he had a lot of freedom and interpretation on those ones, and then on some of them we'd be like, it sort of has to be like this. Um, so for example, um, once he had drawn, sort of, um, there's a uh, an executioner uh, figure, and he sent us this picture of an executioner figure that he'd drawn with a, a sort of hessian sack on his head, and he'd drawn an icon on the front of the the sack that kind of looks like a, a trident with the forks bent outwards. Um, and as soon as we saw this sort of executioner with this symbol on his face, um, that symbol became the symbol of the Justicar, like the, the sorry, the Justice as the, uh, the the lawmakers within Asata. Um, at which point, sort of that informed a whole bunch of other things, and we had to sort of say, oh, well, we need to update. You know, the criminal picture now needs to have this symbol branded under the eye. Um, and that sort of thing. So now that it's very difficult to say what's coming first and what's inspiring something else. It's more sort of um, every single task is <laughs> inspired by a different part of the wheel of tasks um, rather than being a sort of straightforward organized system. And that allows everything to feel when you're done like it was very naturally it arrived, it didn't, um, I think a good example to just sort of um, step outside of the nonsense I was saying just then is when I was in um, studying animation at uni, a really interesting piece of advice that's always stuck with me was not to animate your film from the beginning to the end. You, you start at a random point in the film and then you pick a different point in the film and you animate that bit and then you pick a different bit and you animate that bit. Oh, kind of like keyframes, but for plot. Mm. Yeah, and what this means is that you, as you improve and as you come up with new ideas and go, oh, actually, this would be really cool, or this would be really cool, when it, the whole thing is viewed forwards, 
there's no longer, you can't see it being developed, so it doesn't break the verisimilitude of your immersion. You don't end up with this sort of weird situation where, um, like, in book one, there's a bunch of things that could have been set up, and then in later books, it's like, oh, well, why didn't you set those up earlier, or why didn't you establish this? It really helps the continuity to sort of muddy together in a very natural way that feels like it makes sense. And then once you've muddied it all together, you just sort of prune it and go through and pick out the bits that you... and focus on the bits that you um, want to, to kind of tell the story. And so we kind of took a, take a similar approach when working creatively with, uh, with Doomsong in that artistically sometimes we'll just get... sometimes we'll just ask the illustrator, like, we... We are unsure. We know that there is unthinkable terror here, and we know what sort of forms it needs to take. But other than that, like, you're a... <laughs> creating nightmares is literally your profession, so <laughs> go nuts. Um, and then sometimes, yeah, we'll have a really clear idea of what we want, um, and we'll push with that. Yeah, sounds great. I did notice something I thought was pretty fun because Dimsong has a lot of like medieval feel to it. It's uh, you know kind of the play going on, play Doctor Mask kind of vibes, and yeah. the text of it, the actual like logo, I guess, of Dimsong, it looks like an illustrated manuscript, I guess. And that kind of style to it, I think it's really neat. Yeah. So um, one of the um, sort of drums up in banging recently um, and it, it's something that I started with on um, the Labyrinth RPG um, and have kind of I think come pretty close to um, sort of satisfying my own need for perfection on in Doomsong is this idea that as the sort of a GM's job is to run a game for some players obviously and their job is kind of holding this verisimilitude together and making sure that the simulation materializes as the players explore it. And a adventure writer's game, the kind of the product design element that I was talking about earlier, like the job of, of me, I guess, is to make something that makes that as easy for the GM as possible. Because a GM has a limited amount of resource to think. Like, um, we all know that GMs are human beings that use 100% of their brains, whereas most players only use 48%. That's science. And um, the more of that brain space that the GM has free to just enjoy hanging out with their friends and coming up with interesting ways for the like stories to happen or interesting outcomes to situations rather than being stuck in the rules or looking something up in a book or there are all these tiny places that you can take stress off of the GM in the design process in order to free them up and in a perfect world if you absolutely nail it the GM will never notice that you've done it because the second they notice you've done it or they're thinking about the fact that like you've done it you've dropped the ball like it's absolutely like you're trying to just grease the wheels of their game um and one of the ways to come back to the, the actual question prove i'm not just ran randomly uh, spinning off here one of the ways that um i think it's important to do that or at least one of the ways that's really interesting to do that is by having the book feel like it could exist in the world because your verisimilitude isn't doesn't have to drop when I look down at the book in front of me I don't come out of the world and see all the buttons and gears that I'm pulling I look down and I see something that is entirely within the vibe of the world I'm sure you can imagine if you were running a um like a, a fairy tale adventure and the book looked and felt like a beautiful old creepy fairy tale with watercolor illustrations and like all these kind of like all of the things that you associate with fairy tales you can see that those two things just beautifully fit together 
and it would be very easy. Like, my job would be much, much easier if I just published a Gloss Pages A4 book with <laughs> whatever artwork, you know, we wanted for every single image and didn't try and stick to this consistent thing. And, like, a lot of books are like that. Like, a lot of RPG books don't, you know, <laughs> funnel as much energy as I do into trying to simulate the world for the GM. Um, and... I just it's just something that I personally have decided to put an enormous amount of stock into. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so hold on, I've lost my place in the question she she asked per usual. Uh, what do you consider the most challenging aspect of TTRPG layout and design? Is there anything uh, that's really caused you a real ball ache at some point or another? I'll be honest. The I think the. If you there's this thing like if you're doing it right, it's actually quite a painful and obsessive process. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit there, but um, so one of the most important things for making the game run seamlessly at a table is, like I was saying, taking out all this extra chaff. But the most exciting part of creating an RPG is is throw is throwing all of your ideas in and you need to you need to just throw in a million ideas and really bounce off of all of these ideas and have this huge fun flexible playground but then when there's a real deadline and you have to sell a real product to actual strangers that you've never met you need something that's really tight and really concise and feels infinitely expansive which and those two things are you know the vibe and the reality are actually the opposite ends of the spectrum which means you have to really cull very carefully so that everything is serving multiple purposes and everything is so your law is relevant to your game and your law is also bite-sized because unlike law in the real world where you can study the ancient myths of greece for a lifetime and never get to the bottom of it I need something that I can tell a player once at the table and they will remember it in a month's time when they come back because it's probably a vital clue to whatever satanic temple they've wandered into. Like, so that it's that, that culling process of deciding what lands on the cutting room floor and what makes it into the book is always the most difficult part. Um, and it's, it doesn't ever get easier because as you get better at it, you're also getting better at the other end of the bit, the throwing all your ideas in part. So every time you do it, your ideas get better and better and better and better, and you can come up with more of them faster and faster and faster, but you still have to cut it down to like a very bite-sized handful of brilliant concepts that just flow onto the out from the page through a GM and land with players in a concise way that they understand immediately. Um, yeah. Doom Song's huge, so that must have been one hell of a task. <laughs> Definitely. You're saying about the like culling ideas and things like that. As a quick one, what kind of things have you had to cull that you particularly wanted to keep? Is there anything in there that was like, I wish I could keep this, but it doesn't quite fit? And have you managed to shuffle any of them into potential future projects? <laughs> so, that's the, th the future projects thing is absolutely like anything that doesn't get used just floats around and then it will surface but and also the stuff that doesn't get used quite often ends up better than the stuff that did because you end up having more time to think on it like if if the doom song kickstarter like is successful enough that we can make we can bring out we can break the second seal and bring out the second horseman of the apocalypse at some point in the future all of the ideas from doomsong from lord have mercy on us that went onto the cutting room floor they will have had an extra like year of development time and i'll have been thinking about those kinks that just weren't good enough for an extra year um, and quite often what happens is you end up realizing that two ideas you had were very similar and you're like oh wait a minute yeah this is one 
one idea, and one idea will stay with a player, whereas two ideas won't. Um, so yeah, stuff we've had to cut from Doom Song. So one of the things um, was uh, there's currently um, I think about thirty deities in the. Uh... Oh yes, Morgan was talking about this yeah. one. <laughs> Um, yeah, and there was a point in the deity development process where, like, we had to basically say, so we have the we have the um, the eight sort of deities at the not at the top, but at the top of the you know relevant deities that are still alive list, um, the um, Lamentides and the Alluramorn, who are the horsemen of the apocalypse, and their sort of opposites. And then below that, we have the Sublimes and Dreads, who are kind of the lesser traitor gods. And there were, there are so many inspired ideas for traitor gods that we had <laughs> that um, didn't make the cut. But the cut they can make is that there's space below that for lesser demons, sort of day-to-day -day little, like, um, sort of sidekick lieutenants for these, you know, deities or high priests who have kind of borderline attained the powers of the deities above them. So all of those ideas, whilst not completely cut, they just didn't make the sort of inner circle of gods, um, but their influences and their powers and their sort of machinations and the rad things that we thought they would look like or their sort of, yeah, um, obsessions have kind of now just been put into a mixing pot of ideas for for the next round of, uh, of, of stuff. Okay, well that's uh, gives you a bit more time to stew on the things that you want to keep and essentially work on what you want to do then, basically. I mean, hopefully this well, obviously it's going to succeed. It's going to be intriguing to see what does happen when you eventually do bring out that second book with the cutting room floor kind of information and ideas you did have that are now fully fleshed out. Matt's already like getting his wallet out for the next yeah. episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it is so we have a sort of um, it doesn't it's not quite as uh, literal as this but in the office we have a, a sort of um, uh, a way of loosely organising those cutting room floor ideas so some of them you go oh this one really fits a, a conquesty kind of idea so that goes in the you know bin number four at the end <laughs> and sometimes you're like oh okay well this is a bit this is kind of family this fits the that not i'm not going to give away any of the sort of ideas that we have for future stuff but um other than the four horsemen of the apocalypse theme um which i think is fairly <laughs> Uh, fairly out there already um, but yeah it's kind of all oh, this all fits the ideas that we've been banding bandying around for for a famine campaign so that that sort of gets put there and what that means is that you you aren't constantly dealing with one enormous bucket of ideas you're you're constantly filtering things and then within those sections you are again filtering things further down um, in a more sort of subconscious way I guess rather than a direct way so how do you end up balancing all of this creativity with the needs to have a functional and readable set of material to create Doomsong? Oh, right. Well, that specific task of balancing, that is the culling stage that I was talking about. Yeah. Like, right. And it happens with rules as well. Um, it's more sort of exciting to talk about it, I guess, happening with... Um, with the creative gods ideas, and monsters. yeah, gods and monsters and stuff. But um, often, like we will, we'll play test a, um, a a combat system or something, and it's actually already happened with the combat system that's currently in the um, in the demo set. We've we've played it a few times now, um, and then the other day we were sat in the office and Jack and I were just like, there are just some really simple changes we can make to this that will just grease this. <laughs> this whole machine um, which is one of the really cool things about putting a um, 120 page demo out so early um, means that we've actually got this kind of whole round of beta testing that we've been able to do 
um, in the lead up to the, the kick. Anyway, yeah, so rules. <laughs> your rules end up um, sort of having to be cut down and your law ends up having to be cut down. And the things that you know are more guaranteed to survive are when those two things are the same. Because it's really difficult to valid, uh, like validate cutting something where um, the rule is incredibly simple and tight and the, the law is incredibly simple and tight and they're telling exactly the same story. When that happens, you, you have a fixed point in time around, like, around which the rest of the rules will continue to fluctuate until they reach a similar state of um, unity with each other. But in answer to the question of how that difficult process is, is handled, the answer is, um, like, I, I upset people. That's the, the secret. Um, <laughs> I, I don't process rules. Like, Jack can hold a million rules in his head and say, like, he can theorycraft ten different combat systems in his head over a weekend, just kind of, like, mulling them over. So when it comes to testing something... It, it can sometimes be um, that there are assumptions and things he finds really easy to do that I will just have a stumbling block on. And as a rule, if he has to explain something to me twice, it, it doesn't go in the book. Um, and with the law stuff, similarly, um, Morgan will do basically exactly the same thing. Um, and if if I... If you can't get me to grok a core concept in a couple of sentences, because that's actually at the table, all you need to, like, you kind of want to say, oh, so-and-so is an elven nature goddess. And that sentence already, like, your assumption and tropes are filling in a whole bunch of gaps, right? And you can imagine basically all of the kind of things that this goddess would represent. Maybe you can imagine sort of like what your festivals would look like or what a shrine might look like. Like you're able to start tumbling down a rabbit hole of, um, of ideas there. And if a, if a concept just doesn't come across cleanly, then sort of my not being, <laughs> not being a, a sort of um, super mythology nerd and not being sort of very super mechanically minded puts me in a unique position to just say no this is too confusing i <laughs> i have to upset you now because <laughs> this has to be i have to understand it yeah ideas oh. being harsh harsh reality mm. yeah um and it, it it is it is also very satisfying um and i think that because what you end up with at the end is it is categorically better, right? You can stand at the top of the mountain and look back and go, wow, that came a long way. Like, a month on, you will look back at the the combat rules that you were playing with at the very start of rules development and you will go, yeah, yeah, we... <laughs> this is better. Um, and that's very satisfying. True. So, what's your favourite project you've worked on? Out of all the many, many, many you've had a hand in. <laughs> um, You're allowed to it, say Doomsong if you so wish. It is, it is absolutely Doomsong, by an enormous margin. Um, a close second is a game that hasn't been released yet, called Tales of Primordia, um, which is a, um, it's a dinosaur role-playing game for kids that's set in a world that I designed. Um, I've heard of that before. I don't know yeah. why. Yeah, it rang a bell, but the one it rings a bell for me for is a game about robots. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> um, no, it's definitely about dinosaurs. Um, and I think with both of the thing that those both of those projects have in common is that they aren't movie IPs. Like the movie IP thing is, it's a very interesting space, and it's. A really, it, it was an incredible way to learn how things work. Um, but um, Tales of Primordia was a, a, a world that I completely sort of grew from the ground up. Um, I think it might be getting a 2023 or 2024 release at some point. Um, 
and it, yeah, it was a world I built. I drew every citizen that lived in that world. I designed all the like, all the the landscapes and all the little towns that the dinosaurs lived in, the giant hollow cactuses that the Triceratops tribesmen like occupied, and like yeah, and it it was incredibly satisfying. That was the sort of the first IP that I developed. Um, and actually, was it, it was entirely something that came from a cutting room floor idea that I'd had when back when I was making board games for my friends. Um, so again, that was an idea that percolated for maybe like five years in the back of my head until I got an opportunity to kind of bring it back and run with it. Um, but Doomsong, I think, is just amazing. I think there's there's something so satisfying about hitting this creative stride with a team where it starts to become difficult to tell who to credit for any one particular creative idea because you've just entered a kind of synchronicity where sort of ideas are being bent and twisted and like they are coalescing rather than being um, dictated or yeah, you're not beholden to one sort of core. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the word is. Like one core, one system. core role, or yeah, you, like you have more freedom, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but with Tales of Primordia, it was cr sort of the creative law building thing was almost entirely me, with um, you know a bunch of help from Jack. Um, in the sort of gaps and he, he definitely did jump in and do some creative stuff on it but the the broad sweeps of the creation of that universe was was me and that was something that was really exciting but I actually take a lot more satisfaction from working as part of a creative team I think that the ideas are better and the end sort of result is better because you end up with you, you satisfy more people's tastes and you end up with something that I think is um equally as solid a representation of what everyone wanted but it fulfills it ticks more boxes and it's more interesting it's got more flavors to it rather than just what i like to like yeah i think thinking of it like a meal works better you know where if i just made a meal of things i wanted to eat it would just be macaroni cheese but if we all nothing brought, wrong with mac and cheese right, nothing if, wrong with mac and cheese <laughs> If we all brought our, our own, you know, food to the table, then there'd be, you know, a lot more range and things to try. And like, yeah. <laughs> I love that analogy. I'm just thinking about food now. <laughs> so, what kind of challenges have you faced personally when, like, designing any TTRPG material, um, Doom Song, or any other, really? challenges especially when it comes to having stuff of course be digital but also be workable as like a printed final product yeah so i i love the physical printed thing like i collect tiny plastic men and i i individually paint them i own beautiful dice and i have an entire bookshelf that is crooked under the weight of like comics and indie rpg books and um and stuff and are you I talking about warhammer there no well uh, so i've not played warhammer in a long time but i, I play a miniatures based um I, my rpgs are all played with miniatures and my living room is absolutely full of them my point though is just this collector goblin that lives inside me demands to own beautiful things and i think i will one day be buried with them under a pyramid like that's <laughs> that's who i am and provably those people have existed for millions of well thousands of years humans think, have existed for millions of years i think matt you've just so, met a fellow yeah, I, was gonna, I was just about to say i'm pretty sure jake can attest the amount of things i send over being like i like this yeah I know exactly how you feel and what i want and what i love the idea of is creating that for someone else like the digital thing in the same way as I, I spent my time at Riverhorse, like applying myself very diligently to working out what 
a customer base would want and trying to create something that is custom made for fans of a film that I personally had never seen or something like in the same way I'm I'm really interested in trying to work out what that digital space needs and wants and how to help people to play games in that digital space even though it isn't a space that I feel any drive to occupy. I want to own physical things. I want to be able to fold down the corners of my RPG books and make notes physically on the paper inside the books. Like, that's... You fold your books? How many times do you play through an RPG adventure? Oh, d no. Right, how, how many times, right? If, do you have an adventure that you've played through more than once? A few, yes. Okay, right. If you had made notes directly into the book the first time the group went through the adventure, then the second time they went through the adventure, you'd have all these marginalia that would help you to remember the previous time, or little notes on things you could change, or like, maybe sometimes, so I've been, I ran Hot Springs Island a couple of times, and I've just run it through as if it's like canonically the same adventure, so when the players like, burn a dungeon to the ground, it, it's a note made in the book, so I know that when I, when the players return to the, the scene, you know, when a different group runs that scene, they're going to find a dungeon that was burned to the ground a few months earlier. And it means that you have these living worlds, and they're mine. Like, as soon as you buy an RPG book, it is yours. It's not an artifact, it's not a creation of an RPG maker. It is your book and your world to take to your players, and you own it. And I think that writing in the book and folding the corners down and like treating it like you own it really helps mentally bridge the gap between the GM and owning the adventure and not treating it with any reverence. Because you own it. It's It should revere you. You're the dungeon master. I think I'm going to have to take a note out of your page there because uh, I have to keep things pristine. You do. <laughs> I don't like the idea of adding actual notes into a book. It just oh, that seems like. Uh, how do you feel about this then? So this, I'm interested about. Uh, so, did you say you were a miniatures person as well? Yes. So I was playing. Um, uh, like I was saying, uh, my RPG game is uh, miniatures based. I was playing a game with uh, with friends, um, and one of the characters uh, got into a badly judged sword fight. And had their arm removed in the in the middle of a duel, um, and sort of went down. And the party were like, "Oh no, everything's gone wrong." Um, obviously, as you would. And so, as I am to do, I just went and got the clippers, cut the arm off the miniature, and continued playing. I like, could not do that. No. I would make a separate miniature without an arm <laughs> yeah. and keep the original. <laughs> no, that miniature that miniature represents. A living, breathing character, <laughs> and that living, breathing character doesn't have an arm. <laughs> but the miniature does, and the miniature. Oh, 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 this is setting off so many yeah. things. No, the legacy of it—it's all. Everything I own has this little legacy. That's why I own it. Is because of the stories, right? We tell stories. Uh, like, I get your point. I got to put that story <laughs> in the model. Like, I think it's an excellent way the writing in the margins <laughs> to make your world feel very lived in and like it doesn't yeah. revolve around the party the party is in the world Whoa. but at the same time I could never <laughs> if I, I find out that you don't write in a copy of, uh, of I'm going to have to put like post-it notes on the book because <laughs> I cannot destroy it but I will take notes from now on in campaign. <laughs> I cannot bring myself to just absolutely trash a fucking book <laughs> it's like we, I think is it it, it is Doomsong that has the tear out character sheets, right? Oh no! I am going to keep that intact. <laughs> you better. So the um, the character sheets uh, are in a character sheet pad um, that is tear off. Um, it's quite an interesting little um, thing about that is that the uh, so you know how a, a receipt book or sorry a checkbook yeah. has, has the perforations in it. So you write the, yeah. like the number of the check and stuff, and then you write the, the check out next to it. And then when you tear it off, you have the receipt stuff. So our character sheet pad is like that, which means that you have a section for writing your name, your character's name, and sort of your player name and stuff at the top. And then you can tear off your character sheet. 
and then there's also a slot left on the stub to write down uh, sort of how your character died. And what this means is that at the end of your campaign, you're going to be left with a receipt stub with all of your dead characters on it so that you can sort of keep track of everyone who's died in your campaign. Um, which, if we ever get to the Horseman of Death, uh, will be a relevant thing to have kept hold of. That's very interesting as part of the game. It's so neat. But also I know that I would have that entire thing filled out in like two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> My character mortality rate is too high. Definitely. We've gone way off schedule with that now. I, uh, you better. Like, so Matt made a joke a good couple months ago because my characters die all the fucking time. I, I have like <laughs> so many dead ones per season. It's like, like several usually. Yeah. Um, he, he sent a picture of one of those like bookshop stamp cards where if you buy 10 books, you get a free one. And said that if. <laughs> I think it was six of my characters die afterwards, he'd give me a revive one of them. I think I'm one death away. Oh, there you go. Make it count. If that happens in Doomsong, that'd be interesting to see how that works. Oh, how about I just piss off the Horseman of Death before he's yeah. in the game? Oh. Oh, Jay, do you want to bring it back round for the last couple of questions and then sure. we will shut this down? So... Like you said before, you've worked on a bunch of TTRPGs. Some of them, I don't want to say normal, and some of them extremely <laughs> odd. What's the most like unconventional, out there, plain weird thing you've worked on? And if you'll know, I think in the little chat things, your brother did send us a picture of the fucking worm one. Oh, already oh, steady worm. <laughs> yeah. Um, is that the strangest board game? I think it's on. the artwork mostly. <laughs> it's the artwork and the concept. So that is another example of like, I honestly, I would recommend that. I think that's the one of the one of the few games that we made, IP games that we made that we've actually played for fun outside of work. Um, sort of, and we we've played, we've got it out a few times, and it is. It's a fun little like gambling game. The it the actual premise is bonkers, like and the reason it got made is bonkers and the the artwork is creepy and like everything about it. It's a it's a Frankenstein of a project, but it's a really tight little game. Like it it's fun to play, um, but yeah, it exists solely because. At the time, we had an unused STL asset of the worm, and um, the sort of <laughs> the concept of the project at the time was uh, was like, well, we could save money on sculpts if we used if we made a game that was entirely about this one character that we didn't use a sculpt of, <laughs> like really odd sort of path of logic that led to its creation. But it's a great game, really tight little game. Um, is it the strangest game that we've worked on? Um, it's the strangest game. We've came very close to working on a few games that um, the <laughs> that now that I've almost uh, shared what they were, I've realised that um, I definitely shouldn't. It's a it's an off air conversation. Oh, um, fair enough. <laughs> if there's stuff you need me to redact, I can redact. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Um, yeah, strangest game. Um, I think the strangest one in terms of experience of making it and interacting with the fan base could have been the My Little Pony one. Oh, I saw that come up on River Horse. <laughs> yeah, because it's a it again, like it's it's a good RPG. If you don't like pink horses, you probably won't like the My Little Pony role playing game, like. But, and that's fine. No one's expecting... Like, I would say if you don't like Cthulhu, you probably won't like the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. It's exactly the same leap of logic. But what mm. was really strange about it was that there are people out there that just deeply hate the idea that horses for children are in any way connected to their hobby. Right? Gatekeepers. Like, yeah, like... Oh, no. Like, they get so angry about a cartoon horse. 
and you're just like, can you just step back and like look at what you're mad about? <laughs> can you mm. can you like just momentarily like stop screaming yourself red in the face because you're upset by a cartoon horse? Um, so yeah, that was that was interesting from a point of view of just dealing with some of the like most vitriolic and strange venomous people. You're kind of like I actually feel more uncomfortable with you being associated with my hobby than I am with a cartoon horse being associated with my hobby. Um, I get you on that one. Yeah. I did say to the group, I'm like, probably not one we'd run as a series, but maybe as a Patreon exclusive if we all get drunk and play it. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah, it's it's fun entering a world that doesn't where you're you're sort of being asked to you're being pushed to resolve conflicts with the power of friendship, not with a plus two sword of beheading. <laughs> and that is, at the very least, a different experience. <laughs> a very different one, in that yeah. case. Just a bit. You just well, end up with uh... friendship hobos going from town to town befriending NPCs all the time. <laughs> I'd love that with the same attitude of a proper D&D party. Like, you still have yeah. a fucking barbarian just yelling <laughs> friendship. <laughs> I think you've started something now. <laughs> I think I might have all. <laughs> oh dear. Well, <clears throat> I think due to the time now, we'll probably have to wrap this up here. Uh, oh, hang on. Oh no, it's just Flower taking a note. We did have one question from Flower uh, asking how you work out how to balance encounters with Doomsong. Excellent question. Uh, Doomsong, like real life, is brutally unfair. The way that you balance encounters is that you expect players to look at the dangers in front of them and work out whether or not they should be running towards or away from the thing that's in front of them. Uh-huh. So, I am looking at you directly. <laughs> there are these two, um, and obviously it's a bit more nuanced than this, but there are these two ways of looking at, um, uh, at combat resolution in um, sort of I think it comes from a video games background, but it also applies directly to a, um, a sort of um, RPG background. There's there's combat as war and combat as sport. And combat as sport is a very Final Fantasy or 5th edition D&D um, situation where you are expected, your fights are expected to be balanced for fun and your heroes are expected to sort of engage on fair terms with the enemy and come out on top because of sheer guile and bravery and mostly because the plot said they would. And that's what you're balancing encounters for. And the other side of the coin is encounters as war. And this means that your enemy has what they should have. And it's up to you to try and work out how to give yourself the advantage. Like, if there are too many goblins in the cave, light a fire outside and smoke them out if there are if there's a dragon that you're way too lower level to fight then go and get the dwarves who used to own the cave to come and sort him out for you <laughs> like um it, yeah it's a it's a setting so yeah doomsong is definitely a setting where you are expected to nothing is is power leveled to a point where it's impossible to overcome but there are definitely challenges in there that are that you aren't going to be able to just kick in the door and run in with a sword and it's that's very important to me that was part of the experience that we were trying to create was this idea that it's so much more satisfying to overcome the odds of an enemy that is way more powerful than you because you outsmarted them or you you know you drugged the corpse and left it outside the lion's den and now the lion is kind of like groggy and sick and like you, you've got this advantage that you've sort of clawed out of the situation and suddenly you feel like you've won something because you've overcome and thought through a situation um, and I actually find the whole like combat as sports thing quite unsatisfying um sort of being like, well, hey, I did a hundred damage. I destroyed it. Like, okay, cool. Well done, Iron Man. You won again. <laughs> like, mm. 
Mm. It's just not for me. Um, and I, I think there's more drama and more narrative in not balancing things. Um, yeah, keeping things interesting. Yeah, a hard-won victory, a battle against the odds is more fun than just going, I cast fireball, everything dies. Yeah, and one of the things, so um, the combat system in Doomsong has the, um, it's mapped onto a six-act cycle where, um, so players set a dice to one to six and then they act in order, and six is like slow things that take ages, like doing a heavy attack, and one is quick things, like drawing a weapon. Um, so rather than having an initiative system, it has this built-in six-act cycle that it goes through. And what that's allowed us to do with a lot of the monsters is um, map their actions onto that six-act system. So you can jump to a lot of assumptions about whether something is going to be able to attack early or late, but you, you don't know for certain when you meet a creature what its capabilities are. And in keeping with the whole folklore vibe of uh, the the thing, so to use, I always use Dracula as an example. Um, imagine you don't know how to kill a Dracula. That's a much that that's a much unfairer fight than if you do know how to kill a Dracula. So how do I balance that? Like, what's the balance there? The balance is that. I need to make sure that somewhere in the world are all the clues that you need to defeat a Dracula, not that Dracula should be weaker, if you see what I mean. Um, mm. So the answer is that the correct application of narrative makes balance sort of not a thing. The balance Balancing the combat is actually the player's job, not the GM's. Um, I kind of like how Drumsong is with that. It feels very satisfying to feel like you've evened the odds. That you're staring down whatever cosmic horror you see at an equal level, eye to eye. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that you as a player can kind of be proud of and like, ah, oh. <laughs> we did that. Um, and there's a lot of things that mechanically not encourage the. Um, there's a lot of things that allow the GM that take. The, the GMs will often hold back and instinctively try and balance a combat, and so we've tried to sort of take things out of the GM's hand that might do that. So the random, um, the way that the creatures can be activated simply by rolling a dice and then seeing what it says they do on their one to six act table. What that means is that if a GM is just running the creatures like that, then the the guilt of thinking too tactically and destroying the party is taken away from them but the creatures will still act in a cool and natural way that fits the way that you would expect them to act but it is a little more out of their control how they act um, but it yeah it sort of tries to prevent a lot of that fudged dice roll um, softness that can come with with a, with a game where the outlook is that it should be balanced and fair um, and that is just part of the ethos of the of the design um, I feel yeah. like a good way to put the difference from playing the two games is that in D&D you should be able to win any fight in Dim Song there should always be a way to survive yeah yeah one of the things that we did to again to try and take the um, take the brakes off of the GMs uh, is at the end of each combat round there's that opportunity to retreat um, and what mm. that does is it, it it formalizes that exact thing of like the, yeah there's a way to survive if you die in this fight it's because you didn't leave and, and at the end of every combat turn you have an opportunity uh, sometimes it's more risky than other times but you have an opportunity to get the heck out of dodge, um, and so it's yeah that your bravery is probably what's gonna what's gonna get you killed. Um, hmm, I like the idea of that, but if I see a cat bat, I'm still gonna hit it with a shovel. Yes, yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Jack will tell you. Have you, but, uh, have you killed the Opiri? 
Yes. Uh, no, as Jack will probably tell you, we nearly uh, nearly died to it, but started to beat it to death with a shovel. Okay. Yeah, we chased it off, it ran away, and we took its kid, but we didn't oh. manage to kill it. <laughs> we took its kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah Archer, be now, he's been it's adopted. Trophy. It's not out there looking for you, definitely. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah, details, details. <laughs> Soon we'll have our own IP to fight it. Yeah. I'm sure that's how that'll work out. <laughs> Where can people find you if uh, they want to find you online? You can find us on the Kickstarter page on Tuesday when we go live. That's Tuesday, the literally the next Tuesday. What number Tuesday is that? The f- 17th? 17th? Tuesday. 17th? 17th. Tuesday the 17th. Brilliant. What a pitch. Um, we are going live with our Kickstarter on Tuesday the 17th. Um, it's Doomsong. You can find it by googling Doomsong or typing Doomsong into the search bar of Kickstarter um, or yelling Doomsong out of the window of the tallest tower in the near vicinity of where you are until someone brings you a laptop. Um <laughs> We are also on Instagram and Twitter and stuff, and you literally can just find it by going to Doomsoul. But um, the uh, the Kickstarter is the best way to get information from us right now, because that is what is going to be taking all of our focal energies. Um, and everything will be announced there first, as of Tuesday. That's Tuesday the 17th. Have I said that enough times now? The 17th. The link will be in the description <laughs> of this episode. Thank you very much for your time, Chris. It has been an honour talking to you and a pleasure. Uh, this has been A Part of Cthulhu signing off. Goodbye. 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 <laughs>